Church family, if you have your copy of God's Word, let me invite you to turn to the book of Luke. The book of Luke, chapter 22. Matthew, Mark, Luke. The third book of the New Testament. When you find the book of Luke, find the 22nd chapter. For those of you who are guests of ours, a few months ago we began journeying through the book of 1 Corinthians. We took a pause this summer and we wanted to spend the month of June revisiting something that all of us have seen and been exposed to but we might lack a deep and full understanding. And that is the great confessions of our faith. The Lord has given us two ordinances in Scripture, two ceremonies ordained by God for the church to take part in, to execute, to do in corporate worship. Those are, of course, baptism and the Lord's Supper. Last week, we took a detailed dive pun intended, into the subject of baptism, and I explained fully what it means when someone is baptized. Thank you so much for your kind words and your feedback. It always encourages me when some of our older members come to me and say, you know, I've been in church all my life, and I'm not sure I fully understood everything that you explained. This is why it's important to never assume that even the ceremonies of the church are fully understood. It's also an encouraging thing to recognize you can be in church all your life. You can sit under Bible teaching all your life and continue to learn. One of the greatest joys of my life is everything I learn during the week in preparation for teaching you. And so I'm excited when people are learning and growing in their faith. Last week we talked about baptism. That sermon is available online in our podcast and various media formats. This morning, we're going to do something I have never done in the history of my ministry. I have never preached on the Lord's Supper and not taken the Lord's Supper. In fact, it almost always predicates that when you preach on the Lord's Supper, when you explain the Lord's Supper, when you turn to the passages that give us the Lord's Supper, you then do the Lord's Supper. Now, it's not an oversight on our part. It's actually in anticipation. Some point later today, you're going to tell somebody, we're getting ready to go eat. You say that often, right? Hey, do you, do you eat yet, right? That's a word. Do you eat yet? Do you, do you eat yet? No, we're getting ready to go eat. In fact, today is about eating with dad, if you have the privilege of eating with dad. Poor mom. Mom gets one day. Dad will milk this thing for a week. You know, it was Father's Day. Sometimes I'll slip in a different now, and I'll say, yeah, it is Father's Week. <laughs> but you're getting ready to go eat. Well, spiritually, today, like last week, is in preparation for next week. We're getting ready to eat the Lord's Supper next week, because at the consummation, the conclusion of this series, we're going to enjoy baptism and the Lord's Supper in a unique way like never before. And that's all going to happen next week. I want to encourage you, by all means, not miss next week and be a part of this very special service where dozens of people are going to profess their faith in baptism, and we're going to enjoy the Lord's Supper, and we're going to do them interwoven together during a special time of worship. We are excited about this, and the worship team has been working very hard on this. So we come today to prepare to get to eat the Lord's table. Now, we could go to a number of different places. In fact, Matthew and Mark all include, and John all include accounts of the Lord's Supper. 
But Luke has a few extra details that make it a great passage to go to to really understand the Lord's Supper. I'm going to do it in two ways. I'm going to walk you through this passage pretty briefly, and then I'm going to give you some truths in the form of a list of what does it mean, what is the purpose of the Lord's Supper. Turn with me to Luke 22, and I'm going to begin reading in verse 14. And instead of reading it in its entirety, I'm going to read and explain, read and explain, read and explain, and then we'll make some application. Verse 14, Luke chapter 22. The purpose of his table. And when the hour came, now that's a reference to the hour of the Passover. Church family, the Passover, I only got in four words here, I'm explaining. The Passover, the Passover is an extremely significant annual celebration of the Jews commemorating God's grace in their life in the great exodus of the Hebrews from Egypt. Biblical timelines matter. I don't have every king of Israel memorized. I still sing that song to remember all 66 books. So I don't think it's realistic to expect you to live your life knowing every single detail about the Bible. This is why we continue to read the Bible and study the Bible. But you do need to have a working timeline of how it worked. In the book of Genesis, God created Sin came, the fall. And what we find is that in the book of Genesis, right from the beginning, we see God pursuing relationship with mankind for his glory, for the manifestation of his grace on earth. And one of the things that happens in the book of Genesis is that God establishes a covenant people through Abraham. Abraham, of course, is the father of the nation of the Jews, the Hebrews. But the end of the book of Genesis ends with the Jews in captivity, in slavery, in Egypt. And the book of Exodus introduces another character, another figure, who is a foreshadow of Jesus named Moses. And Moses leads the children of the Hebrews, the Israelites, out of Egypt and to the promised land, which is called Israel. Now, in order to loosen the grip of Pharaoh on this nation of Jews, God sends several plagues. And the final is the death angel. When the death angel passes over Egypt, he takes the life of every firstborn. And God told his people, before the death angel comes, sacrifice a lamb and spread the blood of the lamb on the doorpost of your home. And when I see the blood, I will pass, I will pass over you. Did you grow up singing that song? I did. So a foreshadow of the blood of Jesus is the Passover. So in Jesus' day, hundreds, centuries later, they're still celebrating the Passover. Jesus takes the Passover and births what we have as the Lord's Supper, which is the remembrance of the ultimate Passover, the ultimate shedding of the ultimate lamb for the blood of our sins. So when we have the opportunity to see the correlation we find it in Luke 22, when the hour had come. Now, as soon as Luke says this, he goes on to write these words, Luke 22, beginning in verse 15. <clears throat> and he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. Uh, the Greek is even more literal. He's saying, I have passionately 
really desired. It's a double enunciation. I have, du- I have doubly desired. For I tell you, I will not eat until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, take this and divide it among yourselves. That's not the cup of the Lord's Supper. That's a cup, a part of the dinner. For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. So he's not only saying, I'm initiating something you're going to continue to do. I'm also entering into this meal with you, and I'm exiting this meal with you. This will be the last time you eat this meal with me until the final meal that I eat with you to bring in the new heaven and the new earth, the marriage supper of the Lamb. Verse 16, excuse me, verse 18. For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. A couple of important truths there. One, the bread represents the body of Jesus, the literal body of Jesus. The bread represents the body of Jesus. Many of you, like me, have some wonderful friends and and neighbors in the Catholic faith. Inside of the Catholic faith, this is one of the greatest differences of our doctrine. The Catholic faith teaches a doctrine called transubstantiation. It's a really long word. It simply means that they believe that in communion, which is what they call it, inside of communion, which they call a sacrament, we typically use the word ordinance, and I'll explain the difference in a moment. But inside of communion, miraculously, the bread is transformed into the actual flesh of Jesus. And the wine is transformed into the actual blood of Jesus. Now, of course, they get this doctrine from a lot of places, but it's one by taking passages like this at their literal meaning. The Bible has much that should be taken literally. In other words, if the Bible says it is wrong to covet, it's literally wrong to covet. If the Bible says it's wrong to commit adultery, it's literally wrong to commit adultery. If the Bible says that marriage is for one man and one woman, it literally means that marriage is literally only for one man and one woman. So there is much in the Bible that can be taken literally. But the Bible, like all forms of literature, employs all kinds of means of communication. And one of those means of communication is using symbolic language, analogies, and metaphors. In fact, Jesus says here, this is my body, but he also says, I am the good shepherd. Uh, Elsewhere, he says, I am the door. I am the true vine. I am the gate. Okay, so there are many places where Jesus grabs something inanimate and says, this is what I represent. Another reason that we would lovingly disagree with our neighbors in the Catholic faith is that they also teach that as a part of the transubstantiation, the miraculous turning of the bread and the wine into the actual body and the blood of Jesus, there is more sacrifice happening for our sin. Thus the idea of a sacrament. Yet we don't believe Jesus ever needs to be sacrificed again. The scripture clearly teaches that his death was final in its efficacy. 
its effect, its impact. Jesus died once. He's not suffering anymore. He can go before the Father on our behalf when we are suffering. He can empathize with us in our suffering, but Jesus is no longer suffering. There's no longer any need for the breaking of his body or the shedding of his blood ever before. And so what we find here is that Jesus is saying symbolically, this body, my body is represented by this bread given for you. And that's the most important word. The word given there is a word used when we give something in place of another. His body was given to the cross in place of my body. In fact, when people don't receive the body and the blood of Jesus into their life, when they don't receive his substitute for their sin, their body is given to suffer for their sin. This is called hell. This is where their body is given to. But because he gave his body in our place, we then receive what his perfect pure body deserved, which of course is the righteousness of God's humble grace in our lives manifested in heaven. So the scripture goes on to say, beginning in verse 20, and likewise the cup after they had eaten, this is why we take the bread first and the cup second, though the order, of course, is not as important as the spiritual faith you exercise when you take the Lord's Supper, but we historically and traditionally take the cracker or the piece of bread or the piece of loaf, and then we take the wine or the juice second. This is why the sequence is here. And likewise, the cup, after they had eaten, saying, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. New covenant in my blood. The word covenant in Latin is where we get the word testament. And so the old covenant is the Old Testament. The new covenant is the New Testament. So Jesus ushered in the completion of the old covenant, which was the sacrifice of animals and the shedding of their blood in the place of human blood for the remission of sin, and he brings the new and fuller covenant. In fact, while we don't have time this morning to explore covenant theology, the idea of the shedding of animal blood, which is in the law of the Old Testament, was never given to us by God believing that the blood of a lamb, the blood of a goat, the blood of a bull could actually take away the sins of human beings. It rather showed the great price that is required by God when his law is violated and by faith in God's grace, the law was fulfilled ultimately in Christ. All those animals whose lives were taken to show the seriousness of sin were but a foreshadow <coughs> of man's need for a greater lamb, a better lamb, a superior lamb, a perfect lamb, a lamb without blemish. And this is why What's so beautiful about Christ is that Christ did not come only as the high priest to come before God and to make sacrifice for the world. Christ came as the high priest who also was the perfect lamb. So unlike every other high priest that took an animal and shed its blood, Christ came and gave himself and shed his blood. Thus the culmination of the new covenant in his blood. This is why there's no altar of sacrifice 
in any church today in the world. This is why we don't sacrifice animals anymore. This is why, of course, we don't harm our bodies or sacrifice others for our sins. We, by faith, celebrate the finished work of Christ who offered his blood the new covenant. Now, the scripture says in Luke 22, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. And so, what we find is that that night, the evening of Jesus' arrest, he inaugurated the Lord's Supper from the Passover. Now, we also know that very quickly after the resurrection, taking of the Lord's Supper became a consistent part of Christian worship. Now, like anything else, Christians can get things right and we can get things wrong. Whenever I hear someone attack the church because of some sin a person in leadership has committed, I'm always reminded and I remind others to remember, we don't come here to worship leaders or personalities. We don't ever claim that the church full of sinful human beings always gets everything right. In fact, when someone would accuse the church of being full of hypocrites, I would just lovingly remind them that a hypocrite is someone who attempts to make no acknowledgement of their wrongdoing. And yet Christ continually says that he draws close to men and women who are open about their failures, who are open about their struggles, who bring their sins to him. Not that we relish in them, not that we make excuses for them, not that we're constantly uh, required to never see victory or righteousness in our lives. There are certainly areas of my life where I am less sinful because of God's grace in my life than I was years ago. There are other areas that I continue to struggle in, and you would be the same. The pattern of our life would be that we exhibit more righteousness, more obedience as we grow in the maturity of the faith. But we never raise our hands and say we've got it all figured out and we want the world to see the greatness of God in our perfection. You won't find perfection in me and I won't find perfection in you. And because of that, even sin invaded the Lord's Supper. All we have to do is flip over, and you notice I put it there just below Luke 22, to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Now, in a few weeks, we're going to go through this in much detail as I continue through the book of 1 Corinthians. But in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul finds out that the church at Corinth is completely botching the Lord's Supper. I mean in a bad way. In fact, sometimes I find encouragement when I read the book of Corinth because I'm like, you know, I really ain't that bad compared to these people. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul begins to deal with how they were abusing the Lord's Supper. Now, I'll not take the time to explain the passage fully, but let me just read it to you. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 17 to verse 34, if you want to listen, and then we'll make our application. But in the following instructions, I do not command you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, <coughs> when you come together as a church... I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in the part. For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. Can you imagine getting drunk at the Lord's Supper? You have to be a real lightweight, even if they use wine, right? So... When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. 
For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. And then Paul reminds them what I just taught you out of Luke 22. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Remember that. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it, or as you drink it, in remembrance of me. Paul is quoting Luke. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever, therefore, eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat the bread and drink the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. And then Paul makes a pretty powerful statement. Listen to verse 30. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some of you have died. So Paul says, some of you are sick and others have lost their life because you're abusing the Lord's Supper. That's a pretty powerful thing. That's a literal statement. There's no symbolism here. There's no metaphor. He's not implying that you're just sick spiritually. He's saying your health is suffering because you are dishonoring the Lord in this most sacred, wonderful time of fellowship. Verse 31, but if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment about the other things. I will give directions when I come. One of the best books on theology you read as a beginning seminary student is called Systematic Theology by Wayne Grudem. And this is what Dr. Grudem said about the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper is not simply an ordinary meal among human beings. It is a fellowship with Christ in his presence and at his table. So I walk you through the passage very quickly. Let me give you the purpose of the table in a list format. Second half of the sermon, I'll be brief. List format. Here we go. First of all, what is the purpose of the Lord's table? Number one. The Lord's table is for the redeemed. It's for Christians. Do you realize there are many things we do in the church that we long for and open our doors for anyone who'd like to participate? Some of you are not members of Church at the Meal. Others of you may not have trusted Christ yet. Every week we have people who come to our services or tune in online who are very cynical about the faith, but they're beginning to ask some questions. Maybe they want to see what's going on. Maybe they want to learn and hear a perspective. I don't know if you've ever noticed, but our doors for corporate worship are open to anyone. I can't imagine a situation where we would ever want to exclude someone from worship. There are really only two. The only two reasons we would ever exclude someone from worship is if they posed a physical threat to someone else or if they were disruptive of the service. If, as long as people are not disruptive of the service and they pose no threat to someone else, there's no issue outside related to another person, 
we welcome anyone and everyone to come and hear the Word of God, and to the degree that they want to, they can sing the songs, they can give, they can participate in any way possible. Just a few moments ago, I welcomed any father who was willing to come and to pray. So much of what we do at the church is willingly and passionately open to anyone who would participate. But that doesn't mean everything is. The Lord's Supper is for the redeemed. In other words, to profess Christ as Savior and Lord is the prerequisite of professing Christ as Savior and Lord in the Lord's table. This is why when we have the Lord's Supper, I very clearly always say that, primarily for two groups of people. One is for people who would come and not know that. I would never want to invite someone into participating in an unbiblical way. Number two, or for children. For those among us who've not yet reached that age of understanding, or they've not yet professed Christ. I have six children, three of which are professing followers of Jesus. The other three, the, the second half, ha have not made professions of faith yet. Some are still praying about their understanding of it. Others are far too young. And so when we have the Lord's Supper, my three that are believers certainly participate. But the three that are not, are not allowed to participate. And we explain to them why. It is for the redeemed. Now, when we think about the purpose of the table being for the redeemed, that then unlocks six other purposes. Let's go through them very quickly. Number two, the table is for the redeemed to remember. We remember. Do you realize a lot of the Christian life is remembering I mean, there are always times when you discover something you didn't know. But more times than not, Christian worship, Christian preaching, Christian teaching, your daily devotion is not filled with an insight you never knew. It's merely a reminder. Hey, you know what? Christ died for me. I need to remember that. This is one of the reasons why we do not believe, like our Catholic neighbors do in transubstantiation, I do not believe the bread turns to anything other than bread. It is simply bread. It is simply juice or wine. Why? Because of what Jesus says later in the passage. He says, you do this, not that I would continue to die for your sins. You do this in remembrance of me. When Paul was talking about what he delivered to the Corinthian believers, do you know what he said? He said these words in 1 Corinthians 15. For I delivered to you as a first importance. So this is Paul's way of saying the most important thing I ever gave you was this. And what is it? Look what he says. What I also received. So Paul's saying, the most important thing I ever gave you was not something I made up. It wasn't something from my own wisdom or insight. It's not something that I deduced from rational human thought. No, no, no. The most important thing I ever received, I gave to you because it was given to me and I was told to give it to you. And here it is. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. This is the crux of the gospel, that he died for our sins. And when we capture that in the fullness of the gospel, what we mean is that Christ died for our sins and rose again in victory over death, hell, and the grave. This is the gospel. Christianity cannot be reduced. It's just a plan you sort of plug your life into, a self-help, better improvement, pray over all the things that you want and God will bless them. No, no, no. Christianity at its core is the gospel. The gospel at its core is that Christ came, 
as 100% man and 100% God, lived a perfect sinless life, therefore fulfilling every requirement of the law to step out of earth and on to heaven, yet forwent his righteous place in heaven to give us our righteous place in heaven through the substitutionary atonement of his death. He took our place. And every time you and I, at the end of a service, at the beginning of a service, in the middle of a service, when we are handed that small piece of wafer or that cracker and we are handed that ounce of juice or wine and we pause, we're pausing to remember. It just matters. Think about today. Some of you can't call dad. You can't eat with dad. I've already seen posts this morning, people celebrating their fathers in heaven. And so you remember on Father's Day how special he was. Others of you can't see your dad. You can't call your dad. But today's holiday is a moment for you to remember how special he is to you and how significant he is This is why we celebrate wedding anniversaries. This is why we celebrate birthdays. This is why we commemorate graduation. Some of you will meet for a high school reunion or college reunion. Anything significant in our life, we stamp it on the calendar and we say, we want to remember this day. Now, let me get real personal. When I, DJ, just, just DJ, not Pastor Horton, not Dr. Horton, just DJ. When I sin. When I struggle, when I stumble, when I get out of God's will, it's amnesia. I'm forgetting what he did for me. I'm forgetting who he's called me to be. Often it's intentional, sometimes it's unintentional, but what I'm telling you is is that when Christians struggle in their faith, it always goes back to a disconnect between the moment of temptation and remembering what Christ has done for us. Let me tell you why I know this is true. When I am consistent in my quiet times and my worship and my fellowship and praying with my family, when I'm consistently around other men, in my case, ladies, women, in your case, who are walking with the Lord, all those things just keep reminding me of the gospel. They keep reminding me of what he did. They keep reminding me of how he saved me and how he gave me life. And when I'm consistent in those things, guess what goes down? My sin. My weakness in temptation. Whatever that is. I don't know what it manifests in your life. Anger, pride, impatience, jealousy, selfishness, lust. I don't know what your list is. But, but, but when I forget what he's done, I tend to remember what I want to do. But when I remember what he did for me, I'm more faithful at forgetting my past and remembering his call on my life. Number three, the Lord's Supper is for the redeemed not only to remember, but to refocus. This is what remembering does. In fact, what is the Lord's Supper? The Lord's Supper is not the celebration of the miracles of Jesus. We don't take the bread or the wine because Jesus broke bread and fed 5,000 or he turned the water into wine. That's every social drinker's favorite miracle. That's not what we're commemorating there. It's not what we're celebrating. We're not celebrating his birthday. That's Christmas, right? Okay? What is it? It is the refocusing of the call of the Christian life. What is the call of the Christian life? 
pastor, it's to get saved. Okay. But, but there's another word in and around this idea of salvation. It's to surrender. And when you surrender, you throw your hands up and you say, Lord, it's not my life but yours. Not my will but yours. Not my desires but yours. Then he calls you to a life of sacrifice. Now, because of what he did, nobody has to die for their sins. Nobody in the room has to pay penance. You don't have to worry that somehow God is going to punish you for all your mistakes. There are always consequences for our sin, and sometimes that is God's discipline, but he could never punish you enough for your sin because the punishment's already been done. He did it on to Jesus, which is why it refocuses us on what Christ said the Christian life is. What is the Christian life? Well, remember this verse? I don't know if you remember this verse, but Luke 9, 23. And he said to all, if anyone would come after me, in other words, follow him. Let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow him. So when I hold the bread and when I hold the wafer, when I hold the ounce of juice, I'm reminded in that moment, in that special moment of communion with God, I'm reminded I am celebrating his sacrifice and I'm refocusing my life on the sacrifice he asked of me. Now, the good news is he doesn't ask for my blood. He, he doesn't ask for me to die. In fact, he said, I came that you might live. So what is he asking for? He's asking for me to be a living sacrifice. Number four, the Lord's Supper is for the redeemed to renew. This is where we miss it sometimes as Protestants, as evangelicals. We react so heavily to what we believe to be a wrong understanding of the sacrament of communion or the Eucharist that we forget Christ honors this table. There is a spiritual nourishing that happens in our lives. Jesus used some pretty graphic, symbolic language in John. Look what he says. So Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat of the flesh of the Son of Man... And drink his blood, you have no life in you. You can see where people who don't understand the Bible or people who were new to Christianity. In fact, in the first century when Christianity was beginning to be persecuted, one of the things they were called was cannibals because of this verse. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. Well, there are two ways to understand that passage. One would be literal, which would make no sense. That would make no sense. So we obviously know Jesus is talking here in symbolic fashion. What is he saying? He's saying, just as my body today needs to eat to flourish, my soul needs to feed on the faith I have in Jesus to flourish. Just as my body is connected to calories for life, if I stopped eating... For a short period of time, we'd probably all be healthy. But if I stopped eating permanently, you would watch me emaciate and die. My, my body is not self-sufficient. Once I eat all of the fat reserves I have, and I don't carry that many. <laughs> just want to make sure you're with me. But once, I, once my body digests all the fat reserves and calories I have, then the function of my organs would begin to break down. My mental capacity, my cognitive ability, every system within my body, my cardiovascular system, my pulmonary system, everything in me would begin to suffer from a lack of nourishment. Jesus is saying, 
Just as food is necessary, you must feed on me spiritually if you want to have life. And the Lord's Supper is that moment where the spiritual truth of nourishing on the Spirit of God is brought to bear in the symbolic act of remembering, of refocusing, of renewing our strength in Christ. This is why churches shouldn't relegate the Lord's Supper to something you do once or twice a year. It shouldn't just be tacked on to the end of a service. It should be something special and something, something significant. Now, you may say, are you saying that the actual act, like everything else, it is the faith in the act? Lost people can get baptized. They can sign up. They can answer all the questions correctly. And to the best of our ability as humans who have a limited purview, we can join them in that. That doesn't mean that every person who's ever been baptized by any pastor is saved. I have known people who have made professions of faith, have followed that with water baptism, and then their life completely left the fellowship of the church and they exhibited no spiritual fruit. I don't believe they got saved and lost their salvation. I believe they gave a false testimony as to their profession of faith. Just like baptism, you can go through the motions of the Lord's Supper and get nothing out of it. But when you by faith trust in the nourishment of Christ in your life and by faith participate in this beautiful symbolic ceremony, then the scripture says you will be nourished spiritually from it. That reminding, that renewing, that refocusing. Very quickly, just one or two more. By faith, the redeemed come to the table to repent. Anybody remember this name? Salvatore Cordelion. He's the Archbishop of San Francisco in the Catholic Church. Uh, last month, he made headlines. This was the actual headline. San Francisco Archbishop bars Pelosi from receiving Holy Communion due to abortion support. I don't know if you read that. Nancy Pelosi, the Speaker of the House, is professing to be a devout Catholic. We share much in common with our Catholic friends, our neighbors in the Catholic faith, about our position on the sanctity of life. We rejoice in their position in that, and we share with them our belief that life is sacred from conception to natural death, from the womb to the tomb. And so he denied her communion said that if she presented herself at any of his churches, she would not be given communion. Now, I recognize that his understanding of communion and mine are different, but I thought it was quite fascinating, the courage he displayed. This is what he said. A Catholic legislator, that would be uh, Pelosi, who supports procured abortion after knowing the teaching of the church. So he points out, she knows what the church teaches. The church that she affirms commits a manifestly grave sin which is cause of most serious scandal to others. Therefore, universal church law provides that persons are not to be admitted to holy communion. Now, now, why does the Catholic Church have these laws? He's actually correct theologically. Now, there are liberal Catholics as well as conservative Catholics. I recognize that just as there are liberal progressive Christians as well as conservative Christians. We would be conservative Christians here. But, but why does he recognize this? What is the issue here? What is the point of me sharing this with you? I'm, I'm not in any way trying to bash a politician or to elevate this archbishop. I'm showing you that there has been a long history of recognizing 
Don't come to the table in an unworthy manner. Now, now, let me quote somebody who is inspired and inerrant. Not me, and certainly not an archbishop of the Catholic Church. Paul. Paul says, Whoever therefore eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Now, this is where you pause and go, well, what's the standard? I mean, nobody in the room is perfect. You weren't even perfect this morning. At some point today, you have made a mistake. You have said something you shouldn't have. You have thought something. And I'm certain if you were to do inventory over the last seven days of your life, like the last seven days of my life, you would find areas where you have failed the Lord. So what is he talking about here? Does it mean that we somehow trump up false righteousness? Look what he says. Let a person examine himself. Then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. What does the examining do? It's coming before the Lord saying, Lord, look at me and allow me to look at me the way you look at me. And if there's anything between you and me, I want to obey your word and confess it and claim the grace that was given to me by the blood I'm about to celebrate in the Lord's Supper before I celebrate it in the Lord's Supper. Remember what Jesus said about offering your sacrifice to the temple in the book of Matthew? So if you're offering a gift to the altar and remember your brother has something against you, leave your gift therefore before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, then come and offer your gift. He doesn't say don't offer your gift. He doesn't say you have to be perfect. He's saying, go make it right to the best that you can and then come back and deal with the Lord. Well, if we were to take this same principle and apply it to the Lord's Supper, he's saying, don't hip, skip, up into the Lord's Supper and find yourself not being willing to deal with your own sin. Deal with it honestly and openly. Confess it to the Lord. Allow that catharsis to happen. And then, in repentance, take again the representation of the blood and the body. Last one, uh, maybe two more, to rally the church. His table is for the redeemed to rally. I spent this week in California at the Southern Baptist Convention. Unless you don't read headlines at all, you know that there's controversy even in our denomination. Remember that there are always louder people on Twitter than are really what is true. At the same time, there are issues that the denomination is wrestling with. And to the degree that I can, I'm trying to help. But I also watched our denomination nail it when it came to what we need to do based on going forward, relationships to sexual abuse in the church and helping those who have survived. And yet I was reminded that even this conservative, Bible-believing denomination can't find unity in every single area. If you get six Baptists in the room, you have seven opinions. I think about Father's Day. For some of you, today's a painful day. Your dad's MIA. He may have walked out. Death could have taken him. You don't know, but he's not in your life. And today is a reminder of that. And it hurts. I think about the fact that churches in our denomination, two and three generations ago, would not allow people of color to participate in the Lord's Supper. And yet today is Juneteenth, a very significant day in the lives of many African Americans and those who celebrate what happened June 19, 1865, when the final slaves were freed from slavery in South Texas. When you think about divisions and denominations, when you think about the divisions over segregation, I think about what the table represents. You know what the table represents? One of those rare times 
when all Christians come together and say, in the midst of everything that we can find to divide each other on, to disagree, to hurt, to discriminate, at this moment, when we're honest and open about the faith of the Lord Jesus, we're together. And this is why Paul says these words. Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body. We may be black, we may be white, we may be rich, we may be poor, we may feel this way about this issue, this way about another issue, but for we all partake of one bread. It rallies us. And then finally, I'll leave you with this. It is for the redeemed to retell the story. Every time we have the Lord's Supper, we're retelling the story. That's what Paul says. Paul says these words in 1 Corinthians, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We are a people living between two meals with the Lord. What did he say in the book of Luke? I read it a few minutes ago. I won't even flip back open. He said, I won't eat it again until the kingdom comes. When the kingdom comes, the angel of the Lord told John to write these words in Revelation. He says, Write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. So meal number one, Passover turned into Lord's Supper the night before Jesus' arrest, his cruel, beaten crucifixion, his lifeless body buried, resurrection Sunday, the church is born at Pentecost, meal number one. Meal number two, we all join the Lord for a new heaven and a new earth. Sin and evil and wickedness and death is gone forever. And we enjoy communion and fellowship with the Lord at every meal, just like Adam and Eve did before sin corrupted even the most basic human thing, which is the breaking of bread. So the first meal, he said, I'm going to do it. The next meal, he says, I did it. And you and I live between two meals. And so every time we take the Lord's Supper, we say, I'm commemorating the first meal, and I'm getting ready for the second one. So you know that phrase? Hey, you need to get ready. We're going to eat. Come on, get ready. We're going to eat. Well, that's the invitation. You got one week to get ready. Next week, we're going to eat. What needs to happen in your life? Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your table and what it means. Thank you for the privilege and the opportunity to be reminded of your truth. Thank you that not one of us is worthy, yet you have declared us to be worthy. Thank you, Lord, that you give us a reminder that engages every sentence. We see it, we touch it, we smell it, we taste it, and we hear the words of our pastor as we ingest the food, drink the juice. Often I've asked people to reflect in their heart for a moment or two before we take the Lord's Supper. I've never extended a seven-day reflection. How good would it be for the next six days until the next Lord's Day for us as a people to get ready to take the table? I'm not asking you, church family, to just dwell on your failures. I'm not asking you to wallow in your mistakes. I'm asking you to acknowledge where you are honestly with the Lord and then turn your eyes on Him. That's what the meal does. 
Some of you who don't have your father anymore would love to have lunch with him today. When you think about the memories of being with dad, you think about all those meals you shared together. When you sat across from him, when you listened to him laugh, when you sat in his lap, when you felt his warm embrace, perhaps he had a boisterous laugh, great sense of humor, and you miss those things about him. To eat with someone we love is to share that communion and that fellowship. And isn't that what we call this? Communion. So over the next week, I want you to focus on him in preparation for our meal next week. And if you could turn your prayer into a song, it might sound something like this. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Sing with Jeff, church. Look full in his wonderful face. Here's, here's the promise. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Church family, as you leave this place today, if you don't know the Lord, I want you to go to our prayer room. Our members are there to pray with you and talk with you. I want you to take your first Lord's Supper next week. If you do know him, get ready. Next week, we're going to eat. God bless you. You are dismissed.